You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. That music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter in a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. Hey, Don, what day is it? It's Thursday, May 6th, which is Big Day of Giving in the Sacramento region. Big Day of Giving is an annual 24-hour community-wide movement that unites the Sacramento, California region's nonprofit sector to help raise unrestricted funds for the organizations that strengthen the capital area. And since 2013, the Giving Day has generated over $52 million for over 600 local nonprofits. That's a lot. And Davis Media Access, which is the parent organization of KDRT, is one of those nonprofits. So we're inviting you to join us all on Big Day of Giving. It's really easy. Just go to bigdayofgiving.org. That's bigdayofgiving.org. You can just add slash Davis Media. It'll take you right there to the page where you can donate to Davis Media and KDRT. Or you can just go to the homepage and type Davis Media into the little search box there and up will pop Davis Media and you can donate and help keep stations like KDRT on the air. Our thanks go to the Sacramento Regional Community Foundation for supporting this big day of giving. Nonprofits took a real hit from the pandemic as most of our fundraising activities ground to a halt. So it's been a blessing. The communities really came through and we're asking you to do it again today if you can to help build the momentum of Big Day of Giving. Our operating costs here at KDRT are covered by your donations. You keep us on the air. So if you like local radio, community radio, then we'd love it if you'd head over to bigdayofgiving.org slash davismedia. Thanks. So it is 72 degrees as we uh, prepare this show for broadcast, and it's going up to a high today, according to the National Weather Service, of 92 degrees. And night temperatures are dropping down to right around 50. 52 degrees is going to be tonight's low. And we're going to cool off for the closer to the weekend. We're going to be 82 degrees on Thursday, the day of the show broadcast, and 49 degrees Thursday night. Sunny, sunny, sunny all the way into the extended forecast. Friday is going to be 80 degrees. Friday night, 56 degrees. When nursery owners request weather, this is what we request. Saturday <laughs> Saturday is going to be sunny and breezy, 87 degrees, warming up again. Saturday night will be mostly clear and 59 degrees. Sunday, 88, flirting there with 90. We might hit 90 in some parts of the region on Sunday. And Sunday night, 59 degrees. Monday, 90 degrees. Monday night, 55. Tuesday, 90 degrees. People kind of start grumbling when we hit 90 degrees, but if you're a vegetable gardener or you like certain kinds of flowers or you love those subtropicals that do so well here in the Sacramento Valley, this is what we've been waiting for. So hitting 90 degrees a couple times, especially with a couple days of very low humidity, can really help clear out a lot of the disease problems that cropped up after that weird rainstorm that wasn't a rainstorm a week ago. 
and uh, dry up some of the fungal and bacterial issues and provide the heat that the soil needs to get your tomatoes and your peppers and your eggplants going real well. This is really what we've been waiting for. May is the active planting month in our area in your vegetable garden. I know you all know lots of people who are ready to plant in March. As a nursery owner, I know people who are ready to plant in January. But <laughs> what, we're really, what we're really waiting for is the soil to warm up and stay warm. And it really takes a couple of days in the 90s for us to get there. And now, from now, pretty much through, well, I would say the next uh, 20 or so weeks, probably more like 30 or 40 weeks, we'll probably bounce around in the 90 plus range and in the 80s, and the 90 plus range in the 80s. And the soil temperature has gotten up to that sort of magic number for tomatoes and even for peppers and eggplant now. So we, we are accustomed at our garden center to people walking in when it's 90 degrees and saying, oh, I'm getting late, it's too late to plant vegetables, what am I gonna do? And we say, no, this is the active planting month. All those other people were jumping the gun. Those nights in the 40s were not great for those vegetables. Now, now you can plant all those things that love our summer heat and do so well here. So it's active planting time, not just for vegetables. We've spent four or five programs talking about tomatoes, and we'll talk, of course, more about other summer vegetables, but zinnias, asters, dahlias, um, vinca rosea, all those flowering plants that do so well here in the Sacramento Valley and all over warmer parts of California, this is what they really like, is this kind of weather where we're in the upper 80s to low 90s, and cooler spells are fine, warmer spells are fine. These are plants that just love our summer weather here. And folks are planting flowers and planting vegetables and doing things that they haven't done before. There's a lot of new gardeners out in the yep. last year or so. And, you know, there are resources available for you. This radio show, of course, is one of them, which we think is great. We encourage you to enjoy it. But there's also Master Gardeners of Yolo County, and I know they've got some things coming up. So Summer Fruit Tree Care is on May 20th. On June 3rd is Pollinator Gardens, and on June 17th is Gardening in a Time of Climate Change. Yeah. So if you want more information that, go to their website and look it up. They've also got lots of other things available. Yeah, you can find YOLO Master Gardeners. YOLO is the county. Master Gardeners will get you there if you do a Google search for that. If you want the actual URL, it's YOLOMG, MG for Master Gardeners, dot U-C-A-N-R edu and you'll find some of their presentations there that uh, they're calling slide presentations that you can download on all kinds of topics so they really jumped in you know when the pandemic hit that like every other group that was accustomed to public interface they couldn't do that and so they started doing zoom meetings and also some slide presentations and if you go there you'll find a whole lot of topics planting seeds winter fruit tree care uh, how to compost, all kinds of info, a whole program on citrus greening disease, which I think is a fascinating topic that people ask me a lot about. Uh, insects, going, going, gone, or are they? By Dr. Lynn Kimsey, some great topics there. So those are the Master Gardener presentations that you can download from their website, and you also can find information about their different programs they're still doing as they slowly perhaps take on more public activities. They still are doing the Zoom programs. YOLO Master Gardeners. It's yolomg.ucanr.edu. So this is me. This is our first show in May. Yep. I thought that maybe it would be kind of fun to look this time not at the pictures on your May calendar, which are wonderful. And I encourage everybody to go to your website and look at it. Don's a fantastic photographer. Uh, but I wanted to talk about the 
tasks or opportunities Opportun that you please, have listed? Please, they're not tasks. They're well, for some people, they're tasks. <laughs> they're opportunities. Okay, right? whatever, whatever makes you happy. <clears throat> <laughs> anyway, here are a few things that you might consider in May. Some are for early May, some for late, but... I think the first one is to check out your watering systems Yeah. <laughs> to double check that the coverage of your sprinkler heads is correct, that you're actually watering what you want to water and you're not watering the fence um, to set the timers for your full summer schedule because it's, it's time. It's yeah, time. Normally, yeah, the coming and going. Now we're ready. Yeah. We're talking about this a lot at our shop right now. People are coming in with the kinds of pictures and leaf samples that we normally start to see more in late June, early July, where they're withering along the edges. I can see sequential withering where it's been drought stressed two, three times and then got irrigated just barely enough and recovered. It's always fun when I can take a Sharpie and say, this was the first time it got too dry. This is the second time it got too dry. Um, and what it is, is that there's just no moisture in the soil. They, they, we've talked about this multiple times over the last few weeks. There was so little rainfall this year and relatively low rainfall last year and none in many, many weeks that really amounted to anything. So plants are needing the kind of deeper waterings now that normally would become more necessary in late June. When I would give presentations on this, I would often show a, a slide that showed the intersection of daily evapotranspiration rate and available soil water from a normal winter rainfall period. And when is the point where you're providing most of what the, at least the shallower rooted plants in your landscape need? And ordinarily by my calculations of our average ET rate and the typical water stored in our deeper soils here, you'd be providing almost everything starting sometime in about mid-June. Um, because there was prior to that, there was enough soil moisture from the two to three inches of rain we'd get in February, the two inches or so in March, the inch or two in April, that you could, you, you were providing some of it and winter had provided some of it. Well, that isn't there this year. <laughs> it just isn't there. Uh, they began irrigating the almonds and walnuts around us back in January, and they've been giving them two to three inches of, of irrigation each time they do, because the farmers know that there is no soil moisture to, to tap into from winter rains. So it's really important now that you double check the coverage and they check your drip systems and maybe talk to some of us about how to irrigate in this year where there's just not enough moisture down there. And when we also want to conserve because we're in a drought emergency basically in the state of California. So we want to water correctly. We don't want our big trees to get stressed after two years back to back of low rainfall. We also don't want to be wasting water. So I think it's important to perhaps either pay someone if you don't feel comfortable with this yourself or more to the point, get to know your irrigation system, make sure it's covering where it needs to be, make some strategic decisions about areas you might cut back on watering starting now. Is this the time to maybe start letting the lawn go in parts of your yard, maybe um, water deeper and less often in some better established landscape portions, see how they carry through with that? Because we really do have an important combination of dry soils and um, irrigation systems that need to be monitored. So that's really, I think, number one. It's on the day, it's the first note on May, and I think it's one of the most important things you could do is to double check your irrigation system. And assume that what you did last year is not going to be enough this year. Yep. Yep. Okay, well, on, on such cheerful notes, we also <laughs> have a weather note on the calendar, and it says, well, sometime during May, the temperature will probably get over 100. 
Yep. Oh, usually we have our, we, usually we usually have our first triple digit day in late May. Just that's mm-hmm. yeah, a few weeks away, but it, it's something you know it's coming. But we've already had a couple of of heat waves here, not mm-hmm. that high, but still, yeah. This has been an odd spring. Yes. Don't I say that every year? I well, think it's, I been, it's been an odd spring. I'd agree. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is a really good time to shop for your subtropicals and your citrus because we don't have any chance of frost or really cold weather coming up. So this is great. Yeah, this is when the warm season things really start coming in. Now, citrus are an extremely short supply this year. I should mention that along with many other things in the nursery industry. Citrus are barely out there right now, but you know they'll be along. Subtropicals means things like bougainvilleas. Uh, if you happen to want to plant hibiscus and uh, uh, you know that type of thing, passiflora's the the flowering passion flowers and the passion fruit. There's lots and lots of subtropical plants that we grow in here in USDA Zone Nine, Sunset Zone Fourteen, Sunset Zones Eight and Nine, or the nearby ones, which are not really completely hardy here, but we can get them established enough to get them through a winter. Citrus, uh, like limes, are in that category. Avocados, even the hardy ones, you know, the young plants are a little more tender. So late spring when it's warming up when the soil is warm enough for tomatoes which are subtropicals and things like that it's a good time to plant these kinds of warm weather plants get them going as early in the warm season as possible so they get as much of a root system established and maybe get some woody uh, stems and branches developed so they're going to be more likely to get through next winter so that's one of the reasons we always talk about waiting on planting subtropicals is because they don't go well into cold soil. We're getting planted as early in the warm season as possible to get a good head start on next winter, which is the first, uh, the the one, the most important time that you might need to do some, take some protective measures if we get down below, let's say, 28, 29 degrees. And aside from subtropicals, there are lots of other things to plant now. In the vegetable categories, we've got, of course, tomatoes, peppers, and eggplants. We mentioned those. And then all sorts of squash and melons and cucumbers and pumpkins. And then you can not only plant corn and beans now, but you can do successive plantings. So when you say successive plantings, Don, how frequently are you planting more and how does it work? Yeah, that's a term we use for planting every two to four weeks uh, of something that tends to give you a crop all at once. So beans, uh, you have a choice. You can do pole beans, they call them pole beans, climbing beans, which will climb up onto whatever and produce all season as long as you keep them picked. Or you can plant bush beans, which are just short, compact variants of the same thing that do a whole crop all at once and then they're kind of done. Those are my preference. I just stick them in every two to four weeks to answer your question. I plant a few more or another bed of them every couple of weeks all the way into the middle of July. And uh, they'll produce X number of beans X number of weeks after you plant them. So if you just do it once, you go out there and plant a bunch of bush beans, you'll have one nice big crop of bush beans for a couple of weeks, and that'll be that. Corn is the same way. Uh, you plant it, you plant a nice big block of corn. Very important to do it in a, a block, a rectangle, or a square so they get proper overlap of the pollen, not just a long straight row. It's wind pollinated, you need to get the pollen from the, the silks to the tassels. And um, it, it only does that by wind unless you shake it down there. So if it's in a block, you get better pollination. And then it tends to produce all those ears of corn in that block over a few days and then you're done. So I like to plant about every three to four weeks, another block of corn. I do about a four by six area or sometimes bigger. And knowing that X number of weeks down the road, I'm gonna have 20 to 25 years of corn, 
all at once. So that's why you do successive plantings. Unlike tomatoes and peppers and things which keep flowering, keep fruiting, these are an all at once kind of thing. So every two to four weeks to answer your direct question. Okay, I have more questions. So planting a bush beans all at once would be what my grandma did because she canned. Yeah. And when, when the beans came in, there was a bean canning day. Yeah. Um, but if you're talking about successive plantings, to my mind, that would mean in the same in the same soil. And that doesn't make sense because it takes more than a couple of weeks for this stuff to to grow and, and ripen. So how how long before you take out the first ones to plant them? That doesn't make sense. You, you plant the new ones when the when the first ones are well underway. So you're doing your planning ahead. So you're doing side by so, so you set side by side whole sure. row and you do side by side bunches. If you're an organized person, you do it that way. What I do is I take bush beans and I'll plant two or three next to a tomato plant, and then I'll plant two or three more over there on the line where the peppers are, and I'll plant a couple over there, and I just keep planting them. I just you know for me, I'm just harvesting a fairly small number. I'm not doing a big canning operation. Done there, done that, been there, all the, all that kind of thing. But what I'm mostly doing is wanting well, to go out and harvest enough beans for dinner. So I'll plant four to six plants and you can buy them already started at garden centers. Honestly, with the crisis shortage in the seed packet industry right now, you're probably better off getting plants at the garden centers at this point. Um, get them planted, planted four to six of them in one area and they can be with other things. Here's the thing about the bush beans. Yeah, they trail a bit. They kind of sprawl over the, the garden path, but you can plant them, let's say next to the tomato plant you just put in. You know, that little six inch tall tomato plant with the cage around it. I'll routinely stick three or four bush beans right near the same emitter on the outside of the cage. And they grow up and they do their thing. And just as they're finishing up, the tomato is getting so big, it would have crowded them out anyway if they were going to try and stay there any longer in the season. So I'll do that. And then I'll do a few more a couple of weeks later somewhere else. I just do them to fill in blank spaces in the garden and give a nice harvest over time. If you're a serious person who wants to have food to put by, you probably should be a little more systematic about it and do a whole block of them or a whole row of them. And, and then again, another one three to four weeks later. Or of course, you can plant pole beans. Personally, I've gotten away from that. Pole beans or climbing beans, you know, the climbing versions, you gotta keep up with the picking. And if you don't, they start to ripen on the vine. And then you have a bunch of tough beans that you can use certainly. But uh, uh, as someone who finds them a little overwhelming when I would do a 10, 20, 30 foot row of, of climbing beans, I personally find it easier to manage the harvest and, uh, and sequence of bush beans than I do to manage the ongoing harvest needs of pole beans. So whatever you prefer. If you really like them, plant pole beans on a nice long trellis. Kind of fun to do, but keep up with the picking or they get too big and they get too tough. So pole beans are not picked all at once. They come on a little bit at a time. A, right? lot, at a, a lot at a time. Okay. Yeah. And then bush beans come all at once. Yep. So if they're all ripe at once and there's nothing coming afterwards, do you just rip out the bush when you pick the beans? Yeah. Yeah. You pick a whole okay. bunch. Of, they, it's a week or two. You pick a whole lot of them. They may go a little bit longer, okay. but you can tell they've kind of petered out. And then I just snip it off at the base, let the roots decompose on spite and the, and the top becomes compost. And so I just right. find, I find that easier to manage. It, bush beans are the equivalent of determinate tomatoes going all the way yes. back to, to the uh, tomato talk. Corn, corn is great. Uh, it, everybody should grow it at least once. I mean, I can't even imagine having a vegetable garden without some corn in it. Just sort of a net, just, just an iconic American plant. Um, it takes a 
pretty big amount of water. Corn grows very rapidly. It needs a lot of water in the early stage of growth and all the way up until the ears have set. So it is one of the higher water vegetables that we grow. But then of course, once it's done, it's done. So overall for the course of the season, it's not a higher water user than the other things that continue longer. Makes great biomass. So even if you're not a big fan of corn for its own sake, I consider corn to be one of the best summer cover crops you can grow. Shades out weeds, roots help to till the soil. You chop it down at the end instead of pulling it out. Those roots will disintegrate in place and make those important macro pores for movement of water and nutrients. All that leafy stuff makes fantastic compost. So I've often had people who are having problems with weeds or with uh, nematodes or things like that. Well, corn isn't a host for nematodes. It uh, isn't a host for the soil diseases of tomatoes. It's a great thing to rotate into your garden with those other summer vegetables because it helps to prevent further problems on them. So even if you don't eat a lot of corn, it can be a fun thing to grow. It's amazing how fast it grows. Kids will enjoy it. It's something that should be planted. If you don't happen to want edible corn, there's some really cool ornamental corn out there. Or grow popcorn. Popcorn is actually surprisingly easy to grow and was at one time a big crop here in Solano County. So they can be fun things to grow. It's a, it's a great way to help build your soil and um, very, very, very easy. The one thing I have found is that it benefits from its own soaker hose or its own modified drip system. So you can water frequently while it's in its, especially in the early growth stages. And I use a system where it's drip tubing with an emitter every foot you can buy that way or you can make your own and it runs right next to the plants and I water quite frequently while the corn is getting going. It also is very, very responsive to nitrogen. So any form of nitrogen you choose to apply, whether it's chicken manure or something you buy in a, in a bag that's a fertilizer, you'll definitely see results if you apply fertilizer to corn in the early development stage. Is corn uh, something that you would feed to chickens and what kind of corn would you use? They'll eat anything. So, I mean, corn to the rest of the world, corn is animal feed. They call it maize. Yeah. In America, we eat sweet corn, which was a naturally occurring, uh, spontaneous genetic mutation of field corn that happened, I don't know, sometime in the 19th century. Uh, field corn is chewy, starchy, very good for animal feed. Chickens would eat that. They'd be just fine with your sweet corn as well. They don't care. Uh, and popcorn is uh, just another essentially field corn type thing that has a very hard hull, so it, uh, it, it seals well and can be, can be popped. Um, it is important, if you really get into corn, to learn about the different kinds, because some of them need to be isolated from each other, and others don't. Not a huge issue for most backyard gardeners, but uh, some of the corns should not cross-pollinate. This is the only case in your garden where cross-pollination between two different types can affect what you eat because you're eating the seed. And so people often ask, well, if I have a lemon near a, an orange, will it make my orange sour? No. If I have a tomato, two kinds of tomatoes, will the, you know, the one affect the flavor of the other? No. But in one case, in the case of something where you're actually eating the seed, it can make a big difference because we have field corn, which is chewy and starchy, and we have sweet corn, which should be soft and tender and sweet. And if you happen to have field corn or popcorn within wind pollinating distance of your sweet corn, a certain number of the kernels on the ear are gonna be chewy or tough, and that's not a very desirable outcome. So if you really get into corn and you're listening in a place where you're planting, let's say, varieties that uh, have, say, 60 and 80 day ripening periods so that you can get a sequence of harvest that way, or you're putting in a couple of different kinds, read the packet because certain types of corn need to be isolated other types of corn. 
fascinating lesson in genetics for young budding gardeners. So with corn, I'm assuming that you're going to have a, a bag full of, of seed, corn, mm-hmm. seed corn, and you're going to plant some now and wait a few weeks and plant mm-hmm. some later and, and yep. like that. And your bag of seed is just going to sit there in the, meaning, in the meantime and nothing changes. So if I'm planting bush beans, if I'm using seed, I can do it the same method, plant a few seeds and then hold some back and plant a few. Yeah. But if I'm planting little plants, won't all of those little plants have been started at the same time? And I mean, how am I, how am I doing sequential plantings if all those little plants got started at the same time? You go back to the garden center every two to four weeks and buy more little plants. And they won't have been started. I mean, don't, don't the, the garden centers suppliers just plant up all their beans? No, absolutely not. The garden center grower, the wholesale growers that supply garden centers do sequential plantings of all the things that you're buying. Uh, the tomatoes you're buying now were planted uh, four weeks or six weeks after the very first tomatoes that we were selling. And same thing with corn and beans. Um, it's, they do, they, crop scheduling for the nursery industry is one of the most complicated aspects of our industry because they know that they need to sell thousands and thousands of flats in, let's say, Northern California over a period ranging from about March 15th to the end of May and even into June. And no, they don't start all those at once. I would throw out corn that comes in if it's too tall. I don't accept it if it's more than three or four inches tall. Um, And that three or four inches tall is probably only three to four weeks old in the greenhouse. It's very, very rapid in the greenhouse. And so all the melons, all the squash, all the corn, all the things you're buying were planted on a crop cycle that's been determined by the grower. So they'll have the right number of flats at the right condition for the right weekend. They know that we also go through relatively predictable peaks of sales of these vegetable products and things like that. And so they've got, if they've been at it for a while, they've got it all scheduled out for starting in, in January and planting all the way into May. So they'll have a good sequence of things for garden centers to sell X number of weeks later. Things I'm planting melons, personally planting melons, squash and cucumber seed right now in my small pop-up greenhouses to sell in about two weeks. They sprout that quickly and they root that quickly. Corn is three to four weeks from planting. So the corn that's in my garden center right now was planted two to four weeks ago. If it comes in too tall, I don't accept it. And I think this is important for you as a consumer. I have found that if it's real, in the case of corn in particular, I mean, it always amazes some people that anybody buys six packs of corn, but I can understand it. A lot of people don't do well planting seed directly in the ground. They have a lot of problems. They have birds, for example, that come and eat the seeds. I do most of my corn from transplants, not direct seeding in the ground, because direct seeding in the ground is just a way for me to encourage the wildlife that I love so much. And I figure I get, I just find I get much better results if I start them in little flats first, then plant out the seedlings. Um, you need to plan ahead if you're selling that kind of thing. And you need to have a sequence of healthy young seedlings available for garden centers. I don't care if you buy an overgrown tomato because you can tear up the roots and drop it down several inches. I don't like you to buy an overgrown pepper or eggplant because they're root bound and they're going to be set back by that. And I definitely don't want you to be buying overgrown corn because it'll be stunted in the packs and the plants simply don't develop as well by healthy young plants that look like they just came in from the greenhouse. Wow. What a digression. We're going to, we're going to continue next week with uh, some of the rest of the 
advice on the May calendar since it will be May for several yeah. weeks. Let's let's mention one let's in particular. Go ahead. Let's, no, let's, let's, mention, let's mention one in particular because we talk so much okay. about vegetables. You can plant a lot of flowers now, lots of wonderful mm -hmm. flowering plants that thrive in the heat of the Sacramento Valley, and that includes cosmos, vinca, portulaca, zinnias, china asters, and more. Those are some plants that love summer heat. Also, nurseries are just getting in young plants of caladiums, which will give you lots of color in the shade. Fibrous begonias, impatiens if you're still planting those. Coleus is just beginning to show up in garden centers. So we talk a lot about vegetables and food stuff here because I know that's where a lot of our questions come from. But there's a lot of you folks out there that want to just plant really cool, colorful annuals. Right now is the time to plant the heat lovers anywhere in USDA Zone 9. And that's where we are. And you can do sequential plantings of some of these things, just <laughs> like you do of with the other stuff. Yep. So seriously, you can keep planting summer flowers long into summer. Yeah, I've got to digress here briefly. We're in an interesting situation here in 2021, which is that the bedding plant industry has nowhere near enough inventory for you all out there. It's just all, that's just the way it is. Not only have we lost a couple of growers in our area in the last few years, that just got converted to other uses, um, their demand for everything garden related is just way up and couldn't couldn't be planned for. And so I have things I never sold petunias in any great quantity. I never sold caliber coas in any great quantity. You know, I need to fill the shelf. They're out there. Um, so you're you're um, when people come in and they're asking about, can you get me my four four flats of pink petunias or my my five flats of impatiens that I plant every year? Our answer, honest, our honest answer is we don't know. And that's yeah. the honest answer you're going to get anywhere you ask the question. You may get a not honest answer such as, well, let's just see or we'll try. Those are fairly honest. Um, but the availability issues are just creating chaos, creating complete havoc in our industry right now. So I've got petunias on the shelf. I'm almost beginning to like them. I'm planting a bunch of them on my property to see if I can learn to love this plant that I generally have not been a big fan of. Why? Because it's available. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> and when it gets all those budworms, you can just rip it out and throw it away. I'll report back on how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's do some uh, some emails. And by okay. the way, if anyone has a question out there, you can always send us your email at davisgardenshow at gmail.com. All right. So this one is from Janet, and her title is Shriveled Baby Cherries and Pear Fruit. Yes. Um, have you heard anyone tell you about this thing? The baby fruit on my red pear tree right. and on my late harvest cherry tree have shriveled up and turned black. They easily come off the tree when I pick them. I'd say it's affected about 95% of the cherries and at least 50% of the pears. I have two other cherry trees, but their fruit set and has been maturing properly and the fruit does not affect it, at least not as dramatically as the one tree that hasn't set its fruit until recently. I've never seen this before. It's horrible. Hope you can help me figure out what is going on with these. Now, just a quick note that is an uh, interesting data point is that Janet lives out towards Winters, and Winters is an area with lots of orchards, lots mm -hmm. of diverse orchards. It was famous for, for generations for the production of apricots. 
And there's a lot of small growers out there as well as some big growers that do stone fruits. And it's interesting that these are two completely different problems that had apparently the same symptom. On the, on the cherries, it's almost certainly brown rot of stone fruits. Brown rot monolinea, which is a, a fungus disease that attacks stone fruits, particularly bad on apricots, also attacks almonds, which are technically a stone fruit. They're a nut, but they're you know, a stone fruit. And uh, the other is fire blight attacking her pear. And what it resulted from, remember a week ago, we were talking about the weird weather and how it was gonna be overcast and there was some rain and that rain didn't amount to a hill of beans, but it was enough of high moisture, high humidity and wind, it was very windy and uh, temperatures right in that magic 55 to 80 degree temperature range that is such perfect inoculation weather as my old plant path professor dr campbell would come bounding into the room on a day like that and say oh my what lovely fungus weather we're having today <laughs> from the standpoint of a plant pathologist it was a great day because he could find all kinds of examples out there and uh, after i got her note i walked out i don't have cherries anymore i took mine out because of the spotted wing drosophila problem but uh, i walked over to my apple hedge. I have a hedge of, of 12 apple trees. Nine of them are heirlooms and three of them are modern ones. And I pruned it like a hedge and it's, it's, I just like it for the cool aspect in the garden. All on the southwest side was blighted on three different varieties. I mean, to the point that all of the blossoms which were just finishing up had been hit by fire blight, worse than I've ever seen it on this particular planting of apples. And my pears, the resistant varieties are completely fine. The more susceptible varieties had terrible fire blight. So we hit that magic temperature range for the bacterial disease called fire blight to attack the home fruits. So you got stone fruits and palm fruits. And stone fruits, as they sound, are apricots, cherries, things with a pit like that, you know, it's a pit in the fruit. Uh, so it's apple, apricots, uh, cherries, plums, Pluots, all that crowd, and in particular, she got hit on her cherries with a late infection of brown rot on stone fruit. Very frustrating when it happens. In this area, if you're surrounded by almond orchards or apricot orchards, there's fewer of them than there used to be for this reason, actually, but uh, if you're surrounded by those, if there's a storm like that coming in, it's a near certainty you're going to hear tractor spray rig operators out there spraying before that storm hits trying to get a fungicide spray on there as a preventative to prevent, to save their fruit, to save their crop. Uh, home gardeners, well, if you're inclined for spraying, you could certainly get out there when you see that we're in that temperature range, 55 to 80, 85 degrees, going to be higher moisture and going to be wind, you're going to have infection period. And if you want to spray copper, liquid copper, something like that would probably help prevent it to some degree. Or you can just go, whoop, that was really bad luck, but I got three trees and this one's wiped out, but the other two are fine. I mean, you can be a more laid back gardener if you prefer. Brown rot of stone fruits moves very rapidly into the blossom and damages or destroys the bloom and the young fruit if it's setting. And it can actually destroy the whole spur, the fruiting spur, of these types of trees, which all fruit in clusters and the one little short shoot that's called a spur, can be badly damaged by brown rot. Once it's happened, no, nothing really to do about it, except remember that all that fruit that's hanging on there and damaged by the, the monolinea disease, if it hangs on there and shrivels up and becomes what they call in the business, rather charmingly, a mummy, if it hangs on there and you don't knock those down, that's just an immediate source next year because it can cling to the, the twig or the branch and still be hanging on there next spring when we hit 
brown rot weather again, and that's where your spores come from. So it's not uncommon actually for them to shake trees just to get those dead fruit off of there, to knock them off with sticks, whatever it takes, rake them up off the ground, just your basic orchard sanitation practice to prevent the carryover of the disease. And then next year, you may wish to spray in the bloom period, check the label very carefully for, for safe ones for use around pollinators to prevent it from being a problem again. It might've been just a fluke in my opinion. She's never seen this before. And I had a few reports of this kind of thing on the brown rot and you know, next year might not be an issue. So you, you might just wanna take your chances, but be aware that you have to spray as a preventative. Not once it's there, there's no curative spray for home gardeners. Fire blight's a much tougher one. Fortunately, it's, its infection period is very narrow. It happens during that, that period 55 to 85 degrees. 90 degree weather puts a stop to it. Great, we're getting there now. Low humidity puts a stop to it. But during the infectious period, it can move extremely rapidly into susceptible varieties. And so you can lose all your blossoms, as I did on some of my apples. You can lose a whole branch. You can lose half a tree. I've seen half a loquat tree killed by fire blight in a two-week two period one time. Uh, it's specific to members of the what we'll call the apple branch of the rose family, the palm fruiting uh, members of the rose family. So that's apple, pear, quince, um, loquat, rather importantly in your landscape, pyracantha, which if you look at the fruit are perfect little apples actually. Don't eat them, they're not good for you. Uh, hawthorn, the true hawthorn, these are all in the same tribe of the rose family and they are generally, it, that's the only plant group that's affected by bacterial fire blight. And even within that, there are resistant varieties. So if you're buying a uh, pear variety for your own home garden, I strongly, strongly recommend you look for ones that are resistant to fire blight. Do not buy Bartlett, the most popular pear. On a scale of one to 10, it's a one in terms of fire blight resistance. Buy Moonglow, which is a 10. Buy uh, Warren, which is way up there, Fan still. Uh, so there are varieties that simply never get fire blight. And the same thing is true within the Asian pear group, although less so, there's one variety called Shinko, which is quite resistant. Your life will be a lot easier. You won't have to worry so much about this. If you're looking for crabapple tree, even though it's primarily grown as an ornamental, look for fire blight resistant crabapple varieties. And it'll be on the label because that's a very important selling point for those types of varieties. If you get it, I don't ever bother now to try and prune it out while it's happening because I figure that I'm possibly making a point of infection when I make that pruning cut. If it's still, you know, if it's still 55 to 85 degrees, if it's still humid, if we still got, you know, possibility of rain, then I figure that I'm probably making a mistake trying to prune out what's affected because I could just make an open point for infection. There's some debate about that, but I just wait. I just wait it out. I look at the tree when we're well past the infection period. So first of June, anytime in the summer, there's no hurry once you're past the infection period. And you can get out there and you can see exactly what's been killed back and how far. And you can just get up there, go well into the healthy wood below, prune those little shoots out that were killed, put them in a bag, send them out with the trash, don't put them in your compost pile. And that's what you do to manage fire blight. There are sprays out there for commercial growers. Streptomycin is what they use. It's an antibiotic, not something that home gardeners are going to get a hold of. We just recommend carefully pruning it out after the infectious period has passed and as much as possible looking for resistant varieties. And then every now and then you'll get a fluke year like this where you'll have a really, really bad infection just because of that great disease weather we had a week ago. So well, that was pretty sad, but that yeah. was fire blight and that was brown rot. 
There are other fungus diseases. I'm hoping that we're past them, but do you want to tell us about downy mildew and rust and powdery mildew and black spot? Yeah, all the, Just all, briefly, we covered those in in large terms before. Yeah, all the right diseases now, on all the diseases on roses. You know, you get a moist period like that. Um, you'll get another cycle of them. I went out and my roses look spectacular right now, but they've got black spot. I don't normally get a lot of black spot. Normally, we get downy mildew. That's a cooler season uh, disease. It's there because of that rain has affected a bunch of leaves. The new growth is already coming out unaffected. So much as we all hate the north wind here, much as we all dislike it when it hits 90 degrees, it's 20 miles an hour and it's 6% humidity, that's our natural disease control. That's what makes our life as gardeners here so much easier. So I tell people most of these things have a maximum four to six week cycle. That goes for a whole lot of pest and disease problems. In our area, we're, we're out of the disease cycle for most of those things. Powdery mildew is a bit of an exception because it can continue into higher temperatures and lower humidities than other diseases can. It's also just a little unsightly and doesn't really harm the plant's vigor, whereas these others cause a fair bit of leaf drop and so forth and can be really unsightly. But watch, monitor. I mean, if I went out and sprayed right now with a fungicide, I would think I had solved the problem because the new growth would come out unaffected, right? No, nature solved the problem here because we got low humidity and the disease cycles stopped. But I do know that we have listeners in a lot of places and a lot of places, what happens with your roses and the reason people in your area might be telling you you can't grow roses without spraying fungicides is that you have continued infection cycles all through the summer. And something like downy mildew or black spot repeatedly infecting a plant can cause leaf drop steadily to the point that the plant is weakened by it. That simply doesn't happen here. Uh, we are so dry from, well, basically now all the way through into the middle of October that these disease cycles tend to be interrupted and that's the, that's the end of it for this season for us. If you're in one of those areas, you should do your best to find out, one, are there varieties that are resistant? which there almost always are. There's, there's rose varieties, for example, that never get disease problems. And is there a more benign spray you could be using as a preventative than the more high-powered but more toxic fungicides and insecticides that had traditionally been used by rose growers? Look into things like Serenade, which is a preventative spray that's very low toxicity. It's actually a natural and organic certified material and really does a good job of preventing a lot of these disease problems. That means you gotta be spraying it pretty routinely. On the other hand, it's something you can spray without having this big concern about the uh, toxicity that's, in, that's innate to many other fungicides. I mean, the most toxic pesticide we used to sell at our garden center in the 1980s was a fungicide for roses. That was the highest, there was one called Fungenex and it was triforine. It had a danger label. It was one of the most, you know, one of the most toxic materials we were selling so people could have nice clean rose foliage. Of course, what we always wanted to say and did say was, please read and carefully follow the label directions. Take some stab at that what percentage. That doesn't necessarily work. We want, yeah, we want to guess what percentage of people actually read and follow the label directions, especially as the print has gotten smaller and smaller over the years, and we've all gotten older. I guess older. around 20. Yeah. <laughs> Davis, and Davis maybe more because we have more professors who are yeah. into, you know, engineering and stuff. So if you walk okay, into so it. If you walk into a you know a hardware store and you say I've got diseases on my roses, you're going to have a whole row of products on the shelf, and I just want you to read the labels before you buy them. And by the way, that doesn't mean you have to open up the label on the bottle. You can type right in your phone. You can type the name of the product in, and up will pop somewhere in there a PDF label, the exact copy of what you're what you're looking at. Read the signal word, 
the precautionary statements, and the recommended protective gear. And that'll give you some indication about what you're about to buy. It doesn't mean that, you know, just because something is organic doesn't mean it's safer. That's an important consideration, which we'll talk about another time. Um, you need to look at those really important things. When I'm assessing any pesticide, I look at the signal word, caution, warning, or danger in the increasing hierarchy of toxicity. I look at the precautionary statements, which involve protection of eyes, hands, skin, uh, and also the impact on the environment, because that's on the label now, and any possible environmental consequences. Don't spray near water, you know, this or that with pollinators and so forth. And I read those very carefully, because people send me questions all the time about pesticides, wanting to know if I can get this or that. I had one example recently, I'll go into this in more detail another time, but she wanted to know about a, a weed killer she'd heard about because she wanted an alternative to glyphosate. And had I heard of this, and I'll talk about this and as I say, specifically another time. So before I went any further, I thought, I think I'll just pull up that label and see what the label is on this particular certified organic weed killer. Danger was the signal word. It's the highest, That's level, not good. highest level of toxicity. Um, in the precautionary statements, it causes severe eye injury. Uh-oh. Yeah. And so she wanted to use this as an alternative to the well-known weed killer, glyphosate, because she thought it would be safer because it's certified organic. So that's a misconception, and it does get into the topic of how to choose pesticides if you're going to deal with any pest or disease problem. Or you can do like a lot of us do and just go, oh, well, they got mildew now. It's going to get dry. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I really think that um, this program has done a lot to help people understand that um, coincidence and cause are not the same thing. Correlation does not equal causation, correct. Yeah. <laughs> and this is really important. Placebo effect is a very important principle in horticulture. <laughs> okay, next. All right. So, um, Enough about that stuff. Now, the aphid problem is pretty much gone for the, for the year, isn't it? We're getting people coming in and asking about aphids, and we strongly suggest they go back and look more closely and take their camera, take a macro of those aphids, and uh, suddenly realize how many of them have been parasitized. They're uh, not have, moving. They're not doing anything. Yeah. They're not hurting your plant. Yeah, and actually, they're typically a different color when they've been parasitized. They're a little bloated. They turn tan, and that means that a beneficial wasp has come in and is basically solving your problem. Also, I, the old you know, standard, leave the porch light on in the evening and see what gathers around it. And aside from all the moths and things, soldier beetles or leatherwing beetles are out there. Uh, lacewings are out there. They're all catching up with the aphid populations. People have been asking about ladybugs, and uh, we, you know, they're present too, certainly. Uh, these are all things that feed on aphids, and generally speaking, at least in our climate, Aphid populations by the month of May tend to be waning, and you typically don't have to do a whole lot about them. Well, let's go to the mailbag. Okay. And I have a, um, a question here from Tamara in Davis. Hi, Lois and Don. I'm seeing some mushrooms pop up in a new raised bed that I'm growing two Armenian cucumber seedlings in. It is filled with store-bought raised bed mix and covered with an inch of mulch I picked up almost a year ago. Can this tell me anything helpful about moisture contents, nutrients, microbe activity in the soil? It gets six hours of full sun and I water once every two to three days, about two gallons in this one by four foot bed that's up against a fence. Well, the mushrooms are there because there's a substrate for them to live on, which is some kind of cellulose, typically wood product breaking down, decomposing. So the compost that you bought had some stuff that wasn't fully composted, and that's normal. Um, as 
I can say very generally that the mushrooms are not harmful to the plants, whether they're harmful to you. I'm not an expert on that. And I have to say that repeatedly when people bring in mushrooms for me to identify because they're concerned about their pets or kids. And they say, I can say very generally, they're probably not, but I don't want you to take my word for it. <laughs> you don't a, eat them. What? Don't eat them. Don't eat them. Yes. yes. Don't so eat them. And I don't think she was planning to, but uh, I just had someone in. He, there's a customer I have who has a three pound dog. Three has pound, a what? Three pound dog. Three-pound dog? Yes. And so when we first met to discuss whether this or that was toxic, I was talking, as I generally do, about how, you know, yeah, you're, you're, if you could see the camera of what Lois is doing, she's holding her hands together as if to hold a teacup. Yeah, it's one of those. And um, oh. it's, it's actually, you know, I'm more of a big dog guy, but this is an adorable little dog. And he's very concerned about whether this plant is poisonous or that mushroom is poisonous. I said, well, you're one case where I'd be concerned about it because the dose makes the poison, but the dose is weight dependent. And so, yeah, a little dog like that nibbling on the wrong thing, things could go very wrong. He's, I'm having to look up every house plant he wants to buy, every plant for the garden, because the dog is with him or his wife wherever they go out in the garden. And he brought in some mushrooms. And I said, I, my immediate disclaimer is I'm not a mycologist. I'm not a mushroom expert. I won't even pretend to identify those mushrooms for you. If you're on Facebook, there are fantastic mushroom identification forums. And you can post a picture, and they're going to immediately say, could you please post a picture of the gills, the underside? And you can get some quick identification there, which you could perhaps confirm elsewhere. But there's some real experts on there, just as with the plant identification Facebook groups. There's real experts there that will weigh in. And uh, they can tell you whether they're a concern for your three-pound dog. Um, my answer to mushrooms typically is if you've got some golf clubs in the house, just you know, send them over the fence into your neighbor's yard. But in general, they are just there because there's something for them to decompose. It can take an amazingly long time for that to happen. You can get uh, a whole variety of mushrooms growing in there and they're not in any way harmful, but it does tell you that there's enough moisture and enough of this decomposing cellulose of one form or another for them to be living on. So it doesn't mean that you're overwatering, but it does mean you're providing enough moisture for mushrooms to grow. Other than that, it's really nothing to be concerned about. Shall we do the 10 tips for easier gardening? Um, yes, let's go through them quickly, and then we'll revisit these 10 tips as the season goes along, because we've got a lot of factors coming into play this year, low water, uh, low rainfall, lots of weeds out there, and these are some things that can hopefully make your life easier as you implement them in your garden, not just now, but going forward. We'll talk more about weed problems another time. But let's go, just take them one by one real quickly. Okay, and this is something that's on your website, right? So people can read this there, I hope? It was a Davis Enterprise column once upon a time, so it's there somewhere, yes. Okay, so if you go to Don's website, redwoodbarn.com, and search for 10 tips in the search field, this should come up. Yep. And it starts out this way, spring is in the air. The key to successful gardening is choosing plants that are appropriate to your site and our region and watering them according to their particular needs. Once you've got that part figured out, here are some practices and tips that can make your gardening easier. One, mulch, mulch, mulch. Yeah, yeah putting, mulch on, putting mulch on the ground is one of the simplest things you can do to make your soil better. Two, prune fruit trees in summer. Yeah. Three, water more deeply, but less often. Yes. Four, leave your leaves. Five, watch and wait, spray less. 
That has to do with bugs and critters and diseases. Yeah. Six, know the good guys and help them stick around. Yeah, learn to identify the beneficial insects. That's really important. Seven, reseed your lawn in spring and fall. I would say if you have a lawn or you can just get rid of it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. Eight, <laughs> what? I'm biased. It's not yeah, my Yeah, well, problem. I mean, I think that'll be an option for a lot of people in a year when we've had so little rainfall, yes. Eight, prune less and more informally. Nine, kill wigs. <clears throat> Nine, kill weeds when they're young. We should have said this one back in March. February. February, <laughs> January, something. Yeah. yeah. And 10, wash off pests vigorously. Yeah, those are 10 so practices. We'll, we'll 10 practices. All those. Yeah, we'll go back over them at times. Um, some of them are, are very seasonal now, like washing things off. You know, that's what we do in our garden center to manage pests. Summer pruning of fruit trees is going to be coming up after you harvest. So that's something we'll certainly talk about for size control and fruit management. Leave your leaves. That's a fall thing. But I, I always really want to encourage people to make use of those decomposing leaves. They, they harbor a lot of very beneficial insects, but probably the key one, and this is a good one for us to end this program on because we're gonna, we're gonna probably highlight this week after week after week in this dry, dry, dry summer, water more deeply and less often. If you can manage it yourself, fine. If you need to have better understanding of your sprinkler timer, we're happy to talk about that here. Um, here's another question from Arash. A couple of months ago, I planted some potatoes. By the way, I live here in Davis. Are there any signs that one would look for to signal it's time to harvest your potatoes? Potato is a storage organ that the plant creates as it's planning to go dormant. And so signs that the plant is going dormant, they, they begin when the plant flowers. Uh, that's a certain number of weeks after you plant them. Most people here plant potatoes in February or March and about eight weeks later, which is about now, maybe in April, depending on when they got them in the ground, they start to flower. And there are probably some little tiny potatoes down there as they start to flower. The flowering goes on for a few weeks, three to four weeks. It continue, The plant begins to look like it's kind of finishing. And most people at that point adjust their watering accordingly. They water deeper and perhaps less often. They sort of slowly dry off the plant. Yes, you can poke around down there and see what's going on because they do form, the biggest ones form right at the base of the plant, and then there's more of them a little further out and even more a little further out. But this, the plant beginning to look like it's going dormant or dying is actually, you know, not, not rapidly. If it's doing it rapidly, you, you sped the process up too much. But the, the first sign is some of the older leaves yellowing, and the flowering has been underway for a couple of weeks and you start adjusting the watering, and that is what uh, bring, begins the process, or I guess should, I should say, speeds up the process of developing the tubers. So typically we're harvesting potatoes here in June or July, depending on whether you planted them in February or March, at which point, just for the record, you can replant some and get another harvest in our area of much smaller potatoes, but quite delicious ones in the late summer, early fall. I'm aware of one of the farms that does those uh, consumer baskets, customer baskets of produce, who always tries to plant a bunch of potatoes in about early July. So they'll have new potatoes for the Thanksgiving market. So we can actually plant them here 
two full crop cycles. You get your biggest ones on the ones you plant in February. You get some really good sized ones on the ones you plant in March, which is when they're typically more available. And you're harvesting those in June or July. But the plant does look like it's kind of dying is the, is the first indicator. And then you hasten that along by how you manage the watering. So remember, big day of giving, big 24-hour community-wide movement here in the Sacramento and Yolo County region, uniting the local nonprofit sector to help raise unrestricted funds for the organizations that strengthen our area. It's really easy. Just go to bigdayofgiving.org. You can add the slash Davis Media if you want, and that'll take you right there. Or go to the KDRT website and look for that donate tab. Yeah, you can always do it the old-fashioned way, cater.org, and look for the support button. We want to thank the Sacramento Regional Community Foundation that supports Big Day of Giving. We want to thank all of the donors out there, which includes you, for sending funds to help keep KDRT on the air. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.